We, your people, come to hear you speak to us, Heavenly Father. Speak words of instruction and correction as we need, but we pray also speak words of consolation. If any of us are held back by fear, speak to that fear and blot it out. If any uses fear as an excuse to hold back, remove that too. These times call for ardent believers speaking and living your truth out loud and in public. By your word, make us, by your word, make us those people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may remember that last week I told you that I had a complete sermon on uh, Psalm 94, all tidied up with a ribbon and everything, and as I prayed over uh, verse 19, I realized that it wasn't the way that I wanted to bring that truth to you, so I just sat down and wrote a new sermon and told you that I would probably preach the first sermon this week uh, or another time. Turns out it would be another time. This is still a third sermon uh, that I'm <laughs> preaching this week, a new one on the entire psalm. Maybe you'll hear the original one sometime, or maybe I'll preach it someplace else. At any rate, now I've got a spare. So I want to approach this psalm, though, by way of verse 19. Let's remind ourselves of that verse that we focused on last week. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Well, that sounds absolutely lovely, doesn't it? The thought of consolations from God such as would bring us delight amid times that bring anxious thoughts. Isn't it lovely to think that we would, would receive that kind of a consolation in such dark and dangerous times? But we have to ask ourselves the question, are these any use for the actual world that I live in? Are these consolations such as would be of any value to me amid the kinds of troubles and despair that we're facing today or that I'm facing in my life personally? Well, keeping that verse in mind then, let's start at the start of the psalm. As I've studied this psalm, I see it falling pretty neatly into two distinct parts. And the first is the first 11 verses where we find a warning for the wicked. We find a warning for the wicked in verses 1 through 11. Now, they're warned in two ways. The first way in which the wicked are warned may surprise you, but they are warned by prayer, by this prayer which they would overhear in verses 1 through 7. O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Be lifted up, O judge of the earth. Render recompense to the proud. Let's just pause there for a second. And I really want you to look at and appreciate with me the utter clear-eyed realism of this section. Suppose you're uh, reading a book <coughs> that um, supposed a world that's all puppies and, and uh, dandelions and unicorns where everybody's nice and everybody's reasonable. There's never a harsh word. There's never a hurtful action. Everybody gets along. Everybody gives way to everyone else. And it's a peaceful little kingdom. And in that book, you find little bits of advice to you. What value would you find in those little bits of advice? Wouldn't you immediately think, but that's not my world. <laughs> I don't live in that world. That kind of stuff won't work for me. That'll get me killed or taken advantage of or drive me nuts. It's not for my world. But look at this. 
look at what's supposed here. In, in just these first seven verses, there is the supposition of such wrongdoing that the psalmist cries out, well, how long until you do something about it? So it's wrongdoing that's been going on for a long, long time. And what's the nature of it? Well, we see wicked people. Are they doing well? Verse 3 says, how long shall the wicked exult? Now, this is what really stings him. Not just that wicked people have a good day now and again, but that it looks to them like it's going so well for them that they hold parades. They, they throw confetti in the air. They're very happy about how it's going, or at least so they insist. And the way they talk, look at verse 4. They pour forth words. They speak arrogantly. Probably we should put those verbs together and, and, and take it this way, that their arrogant words it flow like a river that they're just a flood of arrogant words. Is that anything like our culture? Have you looked at Twitter? Have you looked at Facebook? Have you looked at any social media? What is the prevalent thought and the prevalent viewpoint there? What's the prevalent spirituality and morality there? Is it godly? Uh, no, it's not at all godly. And it is exalting, it's arrogant. All workers of iniquity, verse 4 says, vaunt themselves. And it's not just talk, it's taken into action. They crush your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your inheritance. Anything like that going on in our world? They crush your people. So these are people given to the worship of God. Do we live in a world where somebody can just try to have a, a cake business and have his life ruined because he tries to practice his Christian faith? Or a woman can simply have a flower shop and have people try to ruin and, and make progress, take her to court, to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars and hours of time simply because she's trying to practice her faith. And people losing jobs, people being denied positions, people being ridiculed and canceled simply because they're trying to practice their Christian faith in, in the real world. Well, you know, i got to say, that sounds exactly like the world I live in. Your world? Same world, isn't it? And then look at this, verses 6 and 7. They slay the widow and the sojourner and murder the orphans. Well, what do those three castes, those three classes have in common? They're all powerless. They're all powerless in that society. The widow, the orphan, the, uh, the resident alien, all powerless. Do we live in a world in which powerless human beings are targeted cruelly, wickedly? Well, indeed we do. Indeed we do. Uh, I dare say a class that's even more powerless than widows and orphans because theoretically a, a widow or an orphan might run somewhere. But where does an unborn child run? Hmm? Unborn child is in the place that should be the safest place in the world for a child to be, and yet that's exactly where he's cornered and, and torn to bits if he commits the crime of being imperfect or inconvenient or just for no reason at all. And, and the right to do that sort of thing is held by our society and by the people who have the microphones in our society as being a sacred right, that sacred inalienable constitutional right to kill an unborn child, which of course is not in the Constitution at all and is not a right, but it is something that has been done and done for decades in our, in our world, in our society. And what's their premise for all these actions? Verse 7, they've said, Yah does not see, nor does the God of Jacob discern. Well, I want to come back to that in a moment and make, first make another pass through this section and just again highlight the pain brought by the wicked. 
We see that in this section, the pain brought by the wicked, the arrogance of their words, verses 2b through 4, the cruelty of their deeds, verses 5 and 6, and then the delusion of their basic error in verse 7. And, and, And there it is. They've said, Yah does not see, nor does the God of Jacob discern. Well, that's the most, uh, the, the surest way to tell who a person really is, isn't it? Find out what he does when he thinks he can get away with it. That'll tell you who he really is. And so, you know, the fastest way to get an atheist just um, spitting mad, and I'm not recommending making atheists spitting mad. They're often pretty mad most of the time anyway, it seems like. But the way to make them mad instantly, throw them into a rage in an instant, is simply to say, atheism provides no basis for morality. Boom! You know, that just that sets them right to the ceiling because it's absolutely true. But they hate that it's true, and they deny that it's true. And the, the, the truth of atheism, and, and you can look at many famous atheists who've made the, I'm thinking of a couple of names right now, who've made the case that, that atheists tend to be better people than Christians. And then when you find out the way they talk, the way they think, the way they are in their private life, well, here it is. Yahweh doesn't see. God of Jacob doesn't discern. This is what they do when they think there is no transcendent power over them judging them, holding them accountable for their actions. But here's a world that's filled with these things. And again, I just want to bring you back. I want you to marvel at the fact that this is the world the Bible speaks into. Uh, I saw the most amazing thing once at an atheist forum where they were... um, mocking the, the, the Bible. And, and one of them had just discovered that there's a place in the Bible, I won't even specify it, where somebody does a, a monstrous thing. And, and this person says, wow, do people even know this is in the Bible? And this is supposed to be a holy book. And I thought, your point is? <laughs> what is your point? The fact that the Bible reflects the world we're in and the Bible explains why the world is in this situation and the Bible gives a solution for where we are, but, but you think the fact that it reflects the real world, that's something that makes it unholy? Now again, this is, I'm sure, one of these people who, if it were all unicorns and puppies, they'd say, well, the Bible's totally unrealistic. So uh, the truth is, when you want to hate God, you'll find reasons. You know, you'll make them up. You'll, you'll, you'll make them up. Anything's a reason. Nothing's a reason. And that's exactly what this shows. So that's what I really, really want you to get from this section. That if the Bible offers you hope... It's offering you hope in this world, in the world you and I are living in. You and I cannot say, well, that's a lovely thought, but it doesn't apply to me because my situation is totally different from that. Well, no, it's not. We're all in the same situation. We're all in a fallen world surrounded by fallen people doing fallen things. That about right? And so I'm only helped by hope that sees this world and says, yeah, in that world, I have hope for you. Like I said, you know, if, if I uh, am, um, I know I'm dying of cancer. I've seen the, the tests. I've seen the results. And I absolutely know I'm dying of cancer. And I'm in the hospital. And I know it's my last days. And in walks a guy in a white lab coat with a red clown nose on and big floppy shoes. And he says, good news. I have something that'll fix all your problems. And he holds out a big lollipop and says, three licks of this three times a day and you'll be right as rain. Am I comforted? No, I'm not. Because this is somebody who clearly doesn't take my situation seriously. But if a man comes in with my charts in his hand and 
bookmarks on them, and I know him to be an expert who's done amazing things in the field of cancer, and he says, I've studied your case closely, and I think there's something we can do for you. Might I have a little bit of hope? Yeah, because he knows my situation, and he knows things about my situation. He's shown effectiveness. Well, that's what the Word of God is. The Word of God shows it knows our situation. And so the, the hope, the consolation it offers is for us now and here. So you might be thinking, though, but how is this prayer a warning to them? I don't understand that. Well, look at the first verses again a little more closely and see what a warning is there. The prayer starts out, O Yahweh God of what? Vengeance. What is ve- Now, it's, it's funny. A lot of commentators and even translations back away from that word because they don't like that picture. But that's a good translation. It's actually um, it's a plural word, so it really means God of perfect vengeance. It's what's called a plural of amplitude. Perfect vengeance, complete vengeance. And what is vengeance? It's evening the scales when there's been injustice. When someone has done wrong, when someone has offended God, God has the absolute right as the moral governor of the universe to take vengeance on that person. And he is the God of perfect vengeance. And is this something that's emphasized? Why, I read it two times. And that's the way poetry, Hebrew poetry has to underscore something and to put it in italics and draw our attention. Repetition. O Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance, shine forth. Now there's even a hint in that. This is a word that's used of theophany, of those times when God shows himself, when God breaks forth in supernatural intervention. And so he's being called on to show his character as the God of vengeance and and breaking forth, breaking out and showing his powerful, holy nature. And then the next words, be lifted up, O judge of the earth. Well, remember, judge in in the Old Testament is not just the idea of somebody in a courtroom. It's really kind of a cross between a, a courtroom judge and a governor, somebody who has political and judicial authority. And when he says, rise up, why rise up? Rise up to pass sentence, rise up to do something. He's asking God to get going, to get, to get going and get acting uh, against uh, the proud, to give them recompense, to give them what they are due. So the, the way that this is a warning is because of the attribute of God that is, uh, that is uh, emphasized here, that he is holy and takes vengeance against sin and wrongdoing, that he's the judge and he will call to account. And what's, what's his uh, territory? Uh, what, what is the, um, uh, the scope of his, his uh, courtroom? Is it Harris County? Well, no, actually he's the judge of the earth. Well, no, that's everywhere. <laughs> That's where we are, and that's his courtroom, that's his turf, that's his territory. Nobody, uh, no place is safe from his judgment. And notice to the implication, what is the implication of the lament in verse 3? How long shall the wicked, O Yahweh, how long shall the wicked exult? What's the implication there? Not going to be forever. It's gone on, it's been a long night. It's been a long night. But God is still who God is, and He still will act. He still will bring vengeance. He still will bring judgment. And so you say, again, okay, I'm I'm getting towards seeing where this is a warning. Okay, so this is being said in the presence of the wicked. They are hearing a saint of God pray to God this way. 
And is that not a warning? Imagine that you were kind of a tough guy in school and not a very nice kid. Suppose you just bullied a little irritating, weak pansy of a kid in your mind. And you get off the bus and you see him talking to his special forces black belt dad about what you did. Would you take that as a warning? (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, he's telling his dad. (laughs) And what's this? Uh Uh-oh, the saint's telling his dad. The saint's telling his God about what I'm doing and where I am. So is that a warning? Yes, it is a warning. It very much is a warning to the wicked. Verses 1 through 7, by way of prayer. Secondly, the wicked are warned by direct rebuke. By rebuke, that's the word that goes in the blank. By rebuke, R-E-B-U-K-E. He turns, now he's, he has spoken about them to God. Now he speaks and, and he turns and speaks to them. And I want you to notice the connection. Uh, at the end of verse 7, uh, they foolishly boast, nor does the God of Jacob discern. And what's the first word in verse 8? Discern. So they're saying God doesn't discern, and the writer says, oh, look, you discern. <laughs> You're the one who's not discerning. You're the one who's not seeing the way things really are. Discern you senseless among the people. When will you have insight, you fools? Now, pagans are are, are depicted here as being as dumb as oxes. That's the word uh, in in verse 8, bo'arim. It uh, is uh, related to the word ba'ar, which means to be like a cattle, to be like an ox. Brutish, uh, some translations have, is not a bad translation because that's what they are. They're like brute animals. They're, they're as dumb as an ox, with the way I, I would paraphrase it. They don't show the sense that an animal does. Uh, among the people, they are among God's people, and yet they don't learn from what they hear about God. When will you have insight? They're saying God doesn't know, God doesn't discern, God doesn't understand. No, it's you who don't know, it's you who don't discern, it's you who don't have insight. You need to wake up and start thinking. And this is one of the things that strikes me over and over again is you try to have any kind of dialogue with pagans today, they don't think. They substitute mockery for thinking. Mockery is not thinking. Anybody can make fun of anything. No thought is involved. And this is, they hide behind cliches and cut and paste and mockery. And and the thing you can't get them to do is think about what they're saying and about the meaning of what they're saying. They, They just don't want to follow that through. And this is exactly who he's talking to here. So they're saying that God doesn't see, he doesn't know. And he has a question for them, trying to get them to think. Just, just answer me this. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He created those powers. You think he doesn't possess those powers and more? That's stupid. And that is exact. That's the word translated fools in verse uh, 8. I translate it stupid. Stupid. That's just stupid. He who disciplines the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. See, this is why we know anything. We know anything because the world is the way God made it, and we are the way God made him. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to know anything. And this is, this is the irony. The, the only way that an atheist can know anything is by treating the world as if it were created by God, uh, who he denies. But he treats it as a world that, that has design and purpose and predictability, well, like a created world. 
Although he wants to say that it's the product of millions of eons of random circumstances. But then when he does science, he doesn't think it's random. <laughs> he looks for purpose and design. He, think, he looks for predictability. Oh, like a created world. No, 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 don't say that. No, 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 no. We're just going to treat it that way. We're not going to admit it's that way. So uh, he teaches man knowledge, but uh, he's, it's not his intelligence that's in question. Uh, verse 11 tells us the truth of the matter. Yahweh knows the thoughts of Adam. That's the word for Adam, uh, which is also used simply as a word for man. So all us little Adams, he knows our thoughts, that they are havel, they are vanity, they're a vapor, they're insubstantial. And this, again, is just the thing that has more and more overwhelmed me as the years go on, that the boastful, swelling arrogance of unbelievers, and all it is is it's just talk. It's just gas. It's just sound waves. It means absolutely nothing. It loses its power once it leaves their lips. And God knows that. But he, when he speaks, what happens? Universes begin. <laughs> His word is power. It's powerful. But their words are nothing. Their words are vanity. Their thoughts. Their, you could also translate that plans. Their thoughts are vanity. So... Um, the only way to be wise is to start in a totally different way. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. The only way to arrive at knowledge is to start with God, to start resting on His authority and submitted to His Lordship. That's the only way to come to knowledge. And for us, the way we intersect with it is Matthew 16.24. The way we've got to do to, to come to knowledge is deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus. That's the way to live in the fear of the Lord. Deny myself, pick up my cross, follow Jesus. But this is exactly what they won't do, and that's why they're dumb as ox. So there's the warning section. Now having warned the wicked, the psalmist now brings solace, uh, which is comfort, consolation. He brings solace for the saint in the second part of this psalm. He brings solace for the saint in verses 12 through 23. And we'll see three things about this solace. It's principled, it's personal, and it's prophetic. First of all, letter A, we see principled solace in verses 12 to 15, which is to say it's based on the principles of God's truth. It rests on statements of truth. The, the believer gets confidence, he gets consolation, he gets solace because of the truths that God reveals. And verses 12 through 15 unveil some of those. So uh, first, <clears throat> words, blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yah. Isn't that interesting? The, the first words of verse 1 are, O Yahweh, God of vengeance. And the first words of verse 12 are, blessed is the man. So you see, how well this psalm divides into two parts. Verses 1 through 11 depict the chaotic world of the unbeliever, of the pagan. Verses 12 through 23, the consolation that the saint knows, the person who's been set apart to God's ownership and his service. He has principled solace. He's blessed. Um, the wicked is marked by pride and arrogance. He's as dumb as an ox. His time is short. But the blessed man is not boastful. 
but he's happy. God has put him in a happy place. That's what blessed, blessed means. He has many happinesses in his life because of the grace of God. Instead of being boastful and arrogant and, and proud, he's taught by God, he's trusting, and he's triumphant. That's what this section shows us. He's taught by God, he's trusting, and in the end, he's triumphant. Uh, he is disciplined and taught from God's law, verses, verse 12, and he's able to have confidence and calm, verses 13 and 14, and ultimately judgment will again be righteous, verse 15. <coughs> taught, trusting, triumphant. <coughs> so there's the contrast between the two parts. And let's focus on the person that this looks at, the blessed man. <coughs> Sorry. The blessed man. He has a, a curriculum that has a target and a text in verse 12. Blessed is the man who you discipline, O oh Yah. Now, discipline is education with a punch, it is character formation. And so, this blessed man has his character formed by God, and that, that name, Yah, that's just an abbreviation of Yahweh. It is, it is used in um, affection and adoration. And it's used by the unbeliever in mockery where he says that Yah does not see in verse uh, 7. It's like a pagan saying JC or the big guy or something mocking and belittling like that. He uses this dear name as a belittling name, but the believer uses it out of adoration and affection. <coughs> Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Yah, whose character you form, not he himself out of proud and arrogant, pride and arrogance, and whom you teach out of your law. So the target is his character, and the text is the law of God. And I remind you that when Scripture uses that word Torah, it doesn't just mean rules like don't, don't murder and, and don't uh, steal. It's the whole of Scripture. That's, it's all God's law. It's all God's instruction. It all has authority. As I've said in the past, everything in Scripture is a command. It's either a command to believe something, to understand something, to do something or not to do something. But it all comes with God's authority. And that makes it all a command. It makes it all law for the believer. So his curriculum is the, the Torah, the law. His benefit, verse fi- uh, four, 13, sorry, Uh, Verse 13, that you may grant him calm from the days of calamity until a pit is dug for the wicked. So the benefit is that he can remain calm and not lose his mind and not lose hope and not despair, even though things are so dark and concerning. He knows how long isn't forever. God will rise and he will bring judgment. A pit is going to be dug by the wicked. And in fact, the, the wicked himself is helping dig that pit right now. Uh, While he thinks he's building great kingdoms, he's actually digging his own grave by what he's doing. And during that time, the believer who God teaches can know calmness and quiet. Turn to Psalm 37 with me. I'd like you to actually look there. So open your Bible if you haven't already and turn to Psalm 37. So first we'll look at verses 1 and 2.
Do not fret because of evildoers. Do not be envious toward doers of unrighteousness, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So it's very tempting to become very upset, to become furious when you see all the folly and the injustice and all the stupid, wrong things that are done and and the people get away with. But this psalm says, don't fret, don't be envious. Why? Well, because they will wither. I remember once a pastor said to me, a pastor friend many years ago, when some famous person was just getting away with murder pretty much literally, and I was really upset. And he said, Dan, he said, don't be, uh, don't, don't be angry about him. Pity him. He has this little play, and then he goes and he suffers God's wrath in hell forever unless he repents. Well, now when you put it that way, <laughs> when you put it that way, it puts a very different light on it. Look at verses 7 and following. Be still in Yahweh and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who carries out schemes of wickedness. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evildoing. For evildoers will be cut off, but those who hope in Yahweh, they will inherit the land. Yet a little while and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully in his place and he will not be there. But the lowly will inherit the land. The meek will inherit the earth. I've heard that. And will delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked schemes against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord, what? Laughs at him. Why? Why? For he sees that his day is coming. And this is, this is the thing when... Uh, Pagans try to mock and say, well, why does God let evil be? Which is ironic because they're being evil when they say that. Um, Kind of good for them that God's letting evil be for a while or they wouldn't be there to be evil. Um, but I digress. Um, but but there, why does God do it? Well, I mean, there, that's a long answer, but a short part of that answer is because God doesn't see any evil that won't be judged. God sees no unjudged evil because God sees the whole picture because he's decreed the whole picture. And he knows there literally will be no sin that is not completely, fully judged with justice, either on the person of Christ for his elect or in the person himself for the uh, unrepentant. But God sees that judgment is coming, and so he can laugh at the little flourishing, uh, big, big, uh, big voice, big sound, uh, wicked man. But see now, I just want to say this briefly, but I want to say it weightily if I can. When we who profess faith in the Bible get just as, as upset as our unbelieving neighbors who maybe have the same political ideas we do, maybe some of the same social ideas, and we're just as angry as they are, and we're just as spitting mad, and we're just as furious, and just as mocking, and, and just as, as just obviously hot and upset, and next thing to losing our minds, what kind of a testimony are we? We're acting like we don't have a king who's going to judge and like we don't have pity for the people who won't repent and won't know God's mercy. It's not a testimony to the gospel, really, and the Bible gives us reasons not to get so upset as if judgment is not coming. Uh, Scripture says, don't fret, and the Scripture says here in Psalm 94 that the man who God teaches can have calm in the days of calamity. Uh, And then we see the lessons that he learns in verse 14. 
He learns from when God teaches him, he learns, for Yahweh will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Now, are those words familiar to you? Look back at verse 5. They crush your people, O Yahweh, and afflict your inheritance. There's those two words. Your people, your inheritance. Right now, they are doing cruelly. But verse 14 says, God teaches us, he won't abandon his people and he won't forsake us. Judgment is coming to the wrongdoer and vindication is coming to God's people, to his saints. This is is what he also learns, verse 15. For judgment will again be righteous. Yahweh has committed to his people, and God's righteous judgment will prevail. Not evil, not wickedness, not the arrogance of the rebels, but God's righteousness. Judgment will again be righteous. Yahweh will prevail. Now, you say those are very nice thoughts. I'm glad to know those things. But those are all kind of out there, and my troubles are in here. How do I make those truths personal to me? Well, the next section shows us. We've seen principled solace. Now we see personal solace in verses 16 through 19. We saw principled solace in verses 12 through 15. Now we see personal solace in verse 16 through 19. And I want you to notice the shift in language. Before, in verse, uh, the previous section... Before we saw the man and him. These are general statements. Blessed is the man who you discipline and him who you teach out of your law uh, in verses 12 and 13, that you may grant him calm. That's out there. That's a principle. It's a general principle. Uh, And we see in verse 14, his people, his inheritance. Again, that's a very general statement. And uh, in verse 15, you see the upright in heart. Well, again, that's a category. That's out there. But now look at the language of this section. Three times you have the Hebrew word li, which means for me. Uh, I'm going to need to show you one because it, you don't see it in the English text. <clears throat> but verse 16, who will arise for me, li, against evildoers? Secondly, who will take his stand for me, li, against workers of iniquity? And it is in the next line too, let me show you. It, it, literally, the next line says, if Yahweh had not been help for me. Lee. So a third time, you see, but more smoothly, the LSB has had not been my help. That's not wrong. You just don't see that you've got for me three times. For me, that's me. That's personal. That's taking this general truth and making it personal to me. My concern is who's going to arise for me. My concern is who's going to take a stand for me. My, my need is that somebody be a help for me. And right here in this section, we're assured Yahweh is that person. And then uh, verse 17 talks about my soul. Well, that's about as personal as you can get. That's me. Uh, Verse 18, if I should say my foot has stumbled, your loving kindness, O Yahweh, will hold me up. And then again, verse 19, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Now, why belabor this? Well, very, very importantly, because this is how you and I hear God speaking to us. This is something on which there's a great deal of false teaching today. You will be taught the way you hear God teach you, speak to you personally as you become quiet and listen for that still small voice in your heart that the Bible never says God uses to speak to us in. But this is just a Christian tradition. You want to hear God speak to you? Here is where he speaks to us. Here is exclusively 
The Bible contains every divine word we need for all of our life. It contains every word from God that we need for everything that concerns us. And it's a legitimate thing to say, well, but how do I take that and and hear that personally? Well, this section is showing us. I I remind you that the wisdom that crafted this book is the wisdom of God. That the, the person who guided the writers to write what they wrote is the person of the Holy Spirit. And God's knowledge and God's wisdom is infinite. It's exhaustive and limitless. Now, the thing about infinite is that you you do everything you do as if it's the only thing you're doing with all of your attention while you're doing everything else at the same time. You say, well, I can't do one thing at, at a time, let alone two things or everything. Yes, that's right. You can't, and I really can't. But God can because he's God. And so what that means is when he wrote Scripture, he knew what you were going through. He knew exactly, literally, what you're going through right now today. When he moved the psalmist to write these words promising solace in dark, chaotic times, he knew what you would, going, would be going through. And he put something in his word for you. He put something in his word for me. And the truths for God's people in his word, the truths for all of God's people in his word, are truths for each of God's people in his word. And so that's how the psalmist can take these general truths about what God does for his people and say, this is what God does for me. Because if he does it for his people, and I'm one of his people, then he does it for me. If God is a help for his people, and I'm one of his people, then he's a help for me. If he teaches his people out of his law, and I'm one of his people, then he teaches me. God's word is God's word to me. This is how I hear God speaking to me. This is God's personal word to each of his children at the same time that it's his general word to all of his children. And that's exactly what the psalmist does. Takes all these truths and makes them personal. Who will rise for me? The same person who will rise for all his people. Yahweh. Who will take his stand for me against workers of iniquity? The same who will take his stand for all his people against workers of iniquity. If for them than for me. And who is my help in my situation with my husband, my wife, my children, my job, my life? Who will be a help for me? Yahweh will be a help for me because he promised that to his people. Jesus says, lo, I am with you all the days, even to the consummation of the age, Matthew 28, 20. If he's with his church all the days, then he's with each member of his church all the days. So, that brings us to the preciousness of God's God's gift and His goodness. And specifically, let's talk about the preciousness of His loving kindness or His chesed. That's the Greek, sorry, the Hebrew word. If I should say my foot has stumbled, your chesed, O Yahweh, will hold me up. You've heard me talk about that word. It's a wonderful Hebrew word, chesed. You could write it C-H-E-S-E-D. It's kind of a ch at the start, chesed. <clears throat> and it's difficult to translate, but the idea of the word chesed is, I would translate it loyal love or committed love because it is the volitional aspect of love. It is love that has decided I am for this person and nothing's going to change that. Uh, Dale Ralph Davis, Old Testament scholar, he calls it love with super glue on it. 
And, and that's not bad. It is a committed love. It is a faithful, loyal love. And God gives each and every one of his people that love. It began before a world began spinning, and it will continue for all time towards each of his people. The Bible speaks of many wonders of this chesed, this loving kindness. When Moses asked God to show him his glory, that's one of the things that God uh, highlighted. Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in chesed and truth. That was Exodus 34, 6. It's something that the believer has the precious promise will pursue him all the days of his life until he ends up home with God. What, what verse says that? Psalm 23, 6. Surely goodness and chesed will pursue me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of Yahweh forever. God's loving kindness chases me wherever I go and I end up in his house forever. And his chesed endures forever. Psalm 100, verse 5. Psalm 100, verse 5. For Yahweh is good, his loving kindness endures forever, and his faithfulness generation unto generation. You say, doesn't that occur more than just that one time? His chesed is forever? Yeah, Psalm 118 has it five times. His chesed is forever. You say, oh, pastor, can you do better than that? Yes, I can. Psalm 136 has it 26 times. Olam chesdo, his chesed is forever, Psalm 136. So this is a big, big thing. Those are just a few verses. But how is this ours today? As Christians, how do we know, sorry, how do we know that committed love of God? John 13.1 describes it. In fact, turn there because we'll look at a few verses in John. So turn to John 13.1. And here, issuing, uh, ushering us into the last supper that Jesus shares with his disciples before uh, his arrest. Now, before the peace of the Passover, the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, of course, the the word chesed isn't in the New Testament because it's a Hebrew word, but this is that picture. This is that kind of love. It's a love that he set on them that nothing would would take them away from. He set those on the ones he chose. Not the son of perdition, but the 11 he chose for his own. So how did that come to be theirs? Well, he takes us into the eternal... uh, a planning chamber, if you will, in John 17, and he gives us a glimpse uh, of the eternal relations of the persons of the Trinity. This is the real prayer, the real Lord's prayer, his high priestly prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. But look at verse 2. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, <clears throat> that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. The subset of humanity who God gives to the Son, to that subset, he will give eternal life. And he says in chapter 10, what will happen to those to whom he gives eternal life? They will never perish. So he gives them eternal life and they never perish. Verse 6 tells us even more about this. 
I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. So there's the larger set of the world, and from that, a subset that the Father gives to the Son. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now, keep your your place here and turn to Ephesians chapter 1 for a second, because Paul gives us even a bit more light on this same exact thing. Ephesians chapter 1 talking about all the blues, oh, the blues, <laughs> which is cool music, but not at all what I meant to say, all the blessings, I had the word Jews in my mind, that's where I went, I went astray, all the blessing that Jews and Gentiles alike have on equal footing in Christ. He says in verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us, Jew and Gentile alike, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And here it is, just as he chose us in him. Now, I translate that just as he chose us to be in him. Just as John 17 says, of the mass of fallen humanity, God chose a subset and, as Jesus said, gave them in Christ. He chose them to be in Christ. That we should be holy and blameless before him in love. And there's the whole ball of wax that the, we are unholy and blameworthy, but he, he elects us, he gives us to Christ to save, and as a result of his saving work, we become holy and blameless. And verse 5 says, by predestining us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graciously bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of transgressions according to the riches of his grace. Any system of understanding what the Bible says about the gospel or salvation that ends up with any praise or glory to me is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel reserves all praise and all glory for God who before the foundation of a world selects people, gives them to Christ to save, predestines them to be adopted uh, through Christ to himself, and Christ gives them eternal life. And so I ask you to stay in John. Go back to John 6. shows us how it becomes ours in experience. John chapter 6. Now, verse 44 puts a, a, a hedge Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and not a number of those given to Christ to save, and I will raise him up on the last day. Everyone who comes to him, he will, he will raise up. But now look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So those scriptures painted out for us. Before the foundation of the world, God sees the mass of human, uh, fallen humanity selects a subset, elects them, chooses them, gives them to Christ to save. Christ comes and does everything. It is finished that is necessary for their salvation that we might be holy and blameless before him and our sins forgiven and us redeemed. And then in time, God draws us. He pulls us. He gives us new life. He regenerates us so that we might see Jesus in his beauty and ourselves in our need and come running to him. And so that is, you see, that is an eternal love. It began before the foundation of the world. It rests entirely on God and his sovereign grace and goodness. No part on us. Uh, Any part rested on us, that would be the part that damned us. 
but it all rests on him. And so it is indeed with superglue. It is a decision made in eternity past, comes to be ours in our lifetime, continues forever. Turn to John chapter 8, by which I mean Romans chapter 8. Although John chapter 8 is a good chapter, but I really want you to go to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> and just look at the end of this glorious, glorious chain. Someday, Lord willing, I hope I'll live long, long enough to, to teach Romans here. But this is not that day. This is the day of Romans 8, verses 38 and 39, where Paul, having talked about God's predestining grace and the sovereign grace, says, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And what's the suggestion there? The suggestion there is they'll try. But why can't we be separated from his love? Because his love has super glue on it. Because it rests on his character and his decree and his doing and nothing can pull us from that chesed, from that eternal love, which is the part of every believer in Jesus Christ. And so it's that loving kindness that the psalmist exalts in and says, that's what's going to hold me up amid all the things that are going on. If I say my foot would slip, Yahweh's chesed, his unfailing love, that is going to support me. That will hold me up. And you see, you can see now how all this gives me Delightful consolations right here, right now. Verse 19, uh, again, the one we focused on last week. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. In this world where wicked people parade around, vaunt themselves, and actually cause harm in this world, I still have consolations that delight my soul because I know the truths of God's word. That's not the consolation. It's not because not I got a political plan. Not because I think my candidate will win next time. If he does, then the bad guy will win the time after that. I mean, this is this world. It's a fallen world still. And that's not going to bring peace or happiness. No, the Lord does, and it's not like the world's peace and happiness. John 14, 27. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. Why? Because you and I have access to consolations that can delight our soul even right here, right now in this fallen world. So there is principled solace, there's personal solace, and finally, there's prophetic solace in verses 20 through 23. He looks to the future taught by God's Word, and he says... Can a throne of destruction be allied with you, one which forms trouble by statute? They band themselves together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But Yahweh has been my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought back their iniquity upon them and will destroy them in their evil. Yahweh, our God, will destroy them. So this is God's universe, and the wicked, the evil, can have no future in God's universe. They're not going to form a coalition with him. He's not going to negotiate. God doesn't negotiate. And he's not going to negotiate a peace with them. Here's his negotiation. Drop your arms and come out with your hands up. Surrender. It's over. 
That's his negotiation. So they cannot form a, an alliance with him and get half their will done or, or, or three-quarters of their will done. There's no future for them because right now, Yahweh is my stronghold. Now, that Hebrew word, uh, another scholar translates it, uh, my top security. And he does that because it's the idea of a high safe place, a place that's not only safe, but it's up. <laughs> it's above the... <clears throat> the battle and the furor, it's up out of it. Do we have a high safe face like that? Well, yes, again, back to Ephesians 1, we're in Christ who God raised above every principality and power and name that can be named. We are in Christ. So as, as the preacher said in Talbot Chapel once, uh, how can you say you're doing okay under the circumstances? He, he said, if you're in Christ, you're over the circumstances. If you're even in, just, in, in Christ's little pinky toe, you're still above the ter- circumstances because you're in Christ. He is our top security, our stronghold. My God, the rock of my refuge. What's a refuge? I love that word. It's the picture of a place I go to hide. That's what that word means. Hide from the violence and the vileness. And I go to God personally to hide in Him and find Him not to be a feather and not to be a sheet made of cotton, but I find Him to be a rock who can endure any assault. <clears throat> so uh, that is my present, and their end is in verse 23. And I'd like to tell you what it says very literally. Very literally, that verse says, And he brought back upon them their abuse, and in their evil he will destroy them. He will destroy them, Yahweh our God. So he puts that twice right next to each other. He will destroy them. He will dest- Now, does that make you think of a, a kind of a parallelism to something? What else is said twice? First verse of the psalm. Yahweh, God of vengeance, God of vengeance shine forth. And the last verse says, he will destroy them, he will destroy them. So do you see the bracketing there? He is the God of of vengeance, and because he is that, he will shine forth one day. And when he does, he will destroy them, he will destroy them. It is an absolute certainty. He will have the last word. So when he destroys the evil, that means ultimately the destruction of all the dark fruits of sin, all of the dark things that that sin caused. Death, hatred, violence, vileness, all these things that are the fruit of of the fall, all these things will be destroyed when the God of vengeance shines forth. And he'll make a new heavens and a new earth. And his people are the people who will populate that new heavens and new earth. Blessed are the meek because they will inherit the earth. And this speaks of that. Peter speaks of that. Second Peter 3.13, he speaks of a, of a consolation of God that should delight our soul right here, right now. Second Peter 3.13, he says, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And the Greek verb is the idea of it's at home in this planet. It's not a rare, weird thing. It's the rule of God's new heaven and new earth. It's going to dwell permanently there. So I just close by asking, where do you find yourself today? This psalm has two parts. Humanity only has two parts. There's only two kinds of people. You're not black and white because, well, then where's brown and yellow? It's not races. It's not skin color. There's just the saints and the ain'ts. 
There's the people who are God's people, the people who are not God's people. The glorious good news, if you're not in God's people, is that that you're alive. God kept you alive. He opened your eyes again. He brought you to church again so you could hear the gospel again. And so in hearing the gospel, you again hear an offer. You hear an appeal. Come to me, Jesus says. And so I say, as an ambassador, come to Christ. Don't put it off. Don't delay. You don't know. I don't know when he's going to shine forth, but he will. And you don't want to be on the wrong side of God when he does. And the only way to be on the right side of, the God, of God is to be in Christ. Is to take refuge in Jesus. To look to him, call on him, believe in him, trust in him alone as Lord and Savior. You know that kind of love then, then you know eternal love. You know love with super glue. You know love that is yours in every situation. That cannot be taken from you and that can bring you consolations and delight right here, right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this, your word, which alone tells us truth. We would not intuit, we would not figure out, we would not reason our way to. It's ours just by revelation, because you and your great goodness opened your heart to us and revealed yourself to us in Scripture. Thank you for the gloriousness of the truths, the clarity and the power of these truths. Thank you for your justice, your holiness, your righteousness. Thank you for your mercy, your graciousness, your love. And thank you that every one of us who has called on the Lord Jesus knows your love and will know it forever. In Jesus' name, amen.